Hello, I'm Sam Lawton, a barrister at Tenold Square Chambers. And today I'm going to be looking at the case of Patel against Barlow's solicitors, a recent decision in the business and property courts in Birmingham by his honour Judge Mithani, in which I was pleased to be on the winning side, namely the claimants. The case concerned a wide variety of legal issues, including partnership, trusts, in particular Quist Close Trusts, the law of bankruptcy, and then later on matters of costs and the question of whether failure to mediate is something which should be taken into account when deciding on costs. The case concerned a joint venture between the claimant and two other parties in which certain property was to be purchased and then resold at a profit. Unfortunately, the joint venture went very badly wrong due to the fault of firstly the purchasers and then secondly the solicitors acting for the joint venture. The upshot of that was that the entirety of the purchase monies were lost, which was not the fault of the claimant. The claimant himself had provided almost the entirety of the purchase monies, despite the fact that the properties were going to be purchased in the name of one of the other parties to the joint venture. Unsurprisingly, therefore, the claimant was keen to recover those monies from somebody. The first step in that was to try and recover them from the conveyancing solicitors, who had acted negligently in allowing the monies to be paid away without obtaining good title to the property. However, before the claimant could successfully recover those monies from the solicitors in a negligence action, a similar action was launched and successfully concluded by settlement on behalf of one of the other joint ventures, or rather his trustees in bankruptcy. They obtained a large sum of money from the negligent solicitors and it was now for the claimant to try and recover those monies back from the trustees in bankruptcy. The key issues that the court had to decide were firstly whether or not the joint venture constituted a partnership within the meaning of the Partnership Act 1890. Secondly, whether the monies recovered by the trustees in bankruptcy from the negligent solicitors formed part of the partnership assets such that they could be distributed to the partners on taking an account. Thirdly, and in the alternative, whether or not the monies advanced to the solicitors in order to complete the purchase were held by the solicitors on trust, a quist close trust, for the claimants. The trustees in bankruptcy for their part sought an order under the so-called Barclay Applegate jurisdiction that they be reimbursed for all the costs and expenses they said they had incurred in recovering the monies from the solicitors. On the issue of partnership, the trustees in bankruptcy had sought to argue that rather than being a partnership, the monies advanced by the claimant were just that, an advance or a loan to the now bankrupt who was going to be purchasing these properties in his own name. The judge rejected that contention and held that indeed this was a partnership. It bore the various hallmarks of a partnership, such as carrying on a business in common with a view of profit, it didn't matter that it was a single-issue partnership for one transaction, and therefore a very short partnership. It didn't matter that there was some debate as to the number of partners who had actually entered into the partnership. There was some conflict on the evidence. 
Neither did it matter what label the various parties attributed to this business from time to time. In the alternative, the judge held that even if he was wrong on the partnership issue, the monies advanced by the claimant to the convincing solicitors were held by the solicitors on trust for the claimant. Although, strictly speaking, the only client of the solicitor was the now bankrupt, the solicitor knew or ought to have known that the monies advanced by the claimant were to be used for the sole purpose of completing the property transaction. The solicitor therefore held the advance on resulting trust for the claimant, subject only to having the power to apply it for the purpose specified, namely the purchase of the property. Once that purchase was clearly not going to be completed, the solicitor was under a duty to return those monies to the claimant. Even if it were held that the monies were held on trust for the now bankrupt, he himself would hold them on trust for the claimant under similar principles. It followed that any monies recovered from the solicitors by the bankrupt or by his trustees in bankruptcy were held themselves on trust for the claimants. As for the claim by the trustees in bankruptcy to be reimbursed for the costs and expenses they incurred under the Barclay Applegate jurisdiction, the judge held that that jurisdiction was narrow and there was no good reason in this case to exercise the discretion in their favour. In particular, to do so would be to reward them for effectively taking a punt in trying to recover for the creditors of the bankrupt property that did not fall and plainly did not fall within the bankrupt's estate. It was their risk and they should bear the costs that were expended in that endeavour. Turning to the question of costs, one issue was whether or not the claimants should be allowed to claim, as against the trustees in bankruptcy, the abortive costs they had incurred in suing the solicitors, bearing in mind that all these proceedings were at one point consolidated. The judge agreed with the claimants that it was necessary for them to have issued the claim against the solicitors because it was their claim. If they hadn't done so, there was a risk that their claim would have been lost. Secondly, the trustees themselves had had opportunity to collaborate with the claimant in recovering the money from the solicitors and had failed to do so. Indeed, they had compromised their own claim without reference to the claimant. Finally, the reason the claim by the claimants against the solicitors had to be discontinued was because the trustees in bankruptcy had effectively pulled the rug from under their feet. Secondly, the claimants were in fact awarded indemnity costs against the trustees in bankruptcy, partly on the basis that the judge took a very dim view of the trustee in bankruptcy's conduct, both in pursuing the solicitors themselves, but also in the conduct of these present proceedings. As officers of the court, a higher standard was expected from insolvency practitioners. Finally, in relation to mediation, the trustees in bankruptcy had contended that the claimants had failed to engage in the mediation process. But the judge held that the parties' respective offers were so far apart that the claimants were reasonable in rejecting further mediation efforts. Bearing in mind the general stance of the trustees in bankruptcy, it was highly unlikely that any mediation would result in a successful settlement. Patel v Barlow's is a very interesting case for two main reasons. Firstly, in a very long and detailed judgment, Judge Mithani undertook a wide-ranging review of all the relevant authorities on the subject of quist close trusts, as it can be applied to the very many different facts that can arise in practice. 
Secondly, the judge set out a very clear and useful list of factors that the court should take into account when considering the Barclay-Applegate jurisdiction. He listed no fewer than 15 areas which should be considered, and therefore this judgment should provide a useful starting point for most cases where such an application is considered. Finally, it's to be noted that the judge castigated the behaviour of the trustees in bankruptcy in very strong language, and therefore the case provides a useful reminder to trustees of the high standards which they're expected to come up to. If you wish to delve further into the details of this interesting case, all 325 paragraphs of it are now reported at 2021, four weekly law reports at page 6. Mm-hmm.